That's chat is brought to you by Walters. One last weekend of baseball and Walters is ready to see all of its friends. One last time before the end of the season, the weather will be crisp. Soto will be making a push for MVP votes. And most importantly, the beer will be cold. Come for the beer, burgers, bourbon, and baseball. We hope you'll walk on over to Walters. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So now the batter is Ryan McMahon, the third baseman and number six hitter. He's in four straight games, a hit in each game. And a swing and a fly ball. Left field deep. Hernandez going back, way back, looking up, and it is gone. So one out in the inning, and the rain is really falling now. 4-3 ball game, Rockies in front. Not an official game yet. And now the tarp is coming on the field. <laughs> and we are set to continue, finally, in the top of the third. This one is going to be almost two hours on the nose. Romero sets, kicks and delivers. Swing a ground ball through a base hit into right field. One run has scored. So Nunez home from third and a base hit to right for Rymel Tapia. Now the Rockies have two runs home. Runners first and third, still only one out. It's Colorado 8 and Washington 5. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, September 30th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, we were waiting for a Coors Field specialty, and boy, did we get one on Wednesday. The Nationals' final road game of the 2021 season turns out to be a marathon affair in the mile-high air of Coors Field. A six-hour extravaganza if you add up the game time and the rain delay time, a 10-5 loss at the Rockies. Nats lose the series two games to one. Uh, the game featured a rain delay of exactly two hours. The game itself took three hours, 57 minutes, 15 total runs, 23 total hits, 12 total walks, two hit-by-pitches combined. A total of 14 pitchers were used in the game. Mark, we got the Coors Field experience and then some in this series finale. Al, I think you know that I love baseball, that it is far and away my favorite sport, and I would argue that baseball at its best is better than anything else. However, baseball at its worst is about as bad as it gets, and this is high on the list of an example of that. This was just not good in any possible way. There was nothing to take out of this in any positive manner for the Nationals or even honestly for the Rockies, for that matter. It was bad it was bad baseball. It was slow baseball. It felt like two teams 
that know the finish line is coming up. They have nothing really to play for, but they're required to complete this game, <laughs> essentially. And they just had to get through it. And we saw what that looked like. And it was not an enjoyable watch for anybody. Yeah, we had the out with the weather, but the weather wasn't bad enough to ultimately lead to a cancellation of the game. When they resumed it, you thought, well, maybe the bad weather might come back. You could call it a rain-shortened game. Oh, no, the baseball gods wanted to stick it to us, stick it to the Nationals one more time. And, man, did this thing go on and on and on. And, man, you talk about relievers not having it and not throwing strikes and working at a snail's pace. You got that experience and then some on Wednesday. Well, we have a mantra on the Nats Chat podcast. We will watch the game so you don't have to. So hopefully you can let us uh, shoulder the burden of at least this game on Wednesday and uh, we can bring to you what went down here in this game. Nats conclude their season on the road 30 and 51 on the road. I mean, look, it's not like the record at Nationals Park is sparkling, but you know, that is an appreciably bad record away from Nats Park 30 and 51. I mean, that equates to a hundred plus lost season. It's interesting, though, right now with where the Nats are from a starting pitching standpoint. There was actually some news with the Nats on Wednesday, so we'll get into that here with what Paolo Espino did. So we presume this to be Paolo Espino's final start of the year. We're not sure about that now anymore. So he ends up struggling, but struggling in an abbreviated outing. Four runs in two innings, does not come back into the game after the two-hour rain delay. Uh, before the game, Davey Martinez made news saying that Patrick Corbin was not going to be starting any more games this year? Yeah, I have talked to Patrick today, and um, uh, you saw Patrick make his last start uh, yesterday. He's got a little blister going on his finger, and I don't want to push it. You know, uh, I told him, I said, "Hey, you ended off on a on a, on a positive. I thought you pitched really well, and uh, let's let's get to the off season and uh, and continue to work and, and get ready for next year." After the game, Davey says that Eric Fetty will not be starting any more games this year. The Nats have listed as the projected starters for this uh, season-ending series against the Boston Red Sox as Josh Rogers in Game 1, Josiah Gray in Game 2. So what are we thinking for Sunday, Mark? Could it be the secret weapon one last time this season? I think it very well could be, Al. And they were still going to talk about that. They want to see how Paolo feels after this. But I asked him and... I feel good. I know my body's definitely going to recover good for Sunday. And uh, they want me to start. And... uh, that's a possibility. I'll be I'll be ready for it. I'm going to prepare myself as as if I'm going to go either to the pen or to start on Sunday. And maybe just you know leave on a little higher note than this. This was not a good way to end. Not not just because of the results, but I mean you know only through two innings, 34 pitches. That's not how he wants to end this season under those circumstances where he literally his last appearance on the field is standing at the plate with the bases loaded, a two two count on him, and rain coming down in buckets before they finally brought the grounds crew out. So that was a strange way for him to end his season if it was. So I think we will see him again. Now that could be a start. It could be relief. It could be a short start. I think it's going to be an all hands on deck, whoever's still available kind of game at this point. The only fear, you know, I suppose would be if that game means everything to the Red Sox, which it could, are they going to be able to put their best foot out there and throw a game that, you know, is you know, giving the Red Sox their best and, and making sure that that's a competitive game for everyone else who's in the AL wildcard standings. I know Davey Martinez cares about that kind of thing, but you can only use who you have at that point. So if it means Palo for three innings and a bunch of relievers, that may just be what they have to do. But I think we will see him again, provided that he comes out of this one feeling fine. So just to be clear, so Corbin is done for the year. He's actually dealing with a blister. Fetty pitched in relief on Wednesday. Is Fetty done for the year or just done starting for the year? 
he's done starting, he could throw another inning of relief. So what happened there was, and I was wondering for a while if this might happen, his innings count is up to 132 now on the season, which is a career high. And it's something they were watching all along and wanted to be careful with. And I think, you know, they got to a point that they realized like, okay, we don't really need him to make another start. Let's just watch him to be careful. But there also were a couple things they wanted him to work on. Specifically, they wanted him to throw his change up a little bit more. And so by putting him out there for that sort of garbage time inning of relief, they actually were able to say, okay, go work on this thing. And it's almost like a spring training outing in some ways. So he did that. And I think they may want him to do it once more. Could be Sunday, could be Saturday. Somewhere in there, I think we may see him for one more inning of relief, but he's not going to start. And so that's where it got a little confusing because before the game, the Nats put out their rotation plan. And like you said, it's Rogers on Friday and Gray on Saturday. And they sort of ignored Fetty, who would have been in line to go before Rogers. And so even shutting down Corbin, they could have just gone Fetty, Rogers, Gray, no problem. But then after the game, we found out when we saw him pitching in relief, you realize something's up. And so that's what's going on there. They just wanted to limit his innings here at the end of the season. So they've got to get through these last three games. <laughs> Obviously, they're going to use whatever they have still available to them, but it may not look real pretty, unfortunately, just kind of like this game was. There's something appropriate, though, with Paolo that like his last two outings would be like this, where... He starts, but it's abbreviated, and so he ends up coming back and starting on short rest. Like, that's kind of been Paolo this year. He's been this all-purpose pitcher. He's done whatever has been asked of him, and so for him to one more time do that which is asked of him, I feel like is kind of fitting. It was a rough outing, like I said. Four runs in two innings, gives up four runs in the bottom of the first inning. It was odd. He retired the first two batters he faced, but then allowed four consecutive Rockies to reach base. The big blow, a two-out first pitch, three-run opposite field home run, by Ryan McMahon to left center field for a 4-2 Rockies lead. And the game just had that feeling from like the get-go of this was going to be one of these games. This was going to be one of these Coors Field specialties. The Nats, it felt like, had a million singles over the first two innings. That's the thing about this series. It's not like the Nats hit a lot of home runs. They didn't, but a lot of singles. Zero home runs in the series. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible when you think about that. Now, the Rockies sure didn't hit zero home runs. But yeah, a lot of singles, a lot of men on base. If you're a big believer in the ball having to be in play and you're an anti-three-true outcomes baseball fan, this is actually a good series for you, uh, especially if you're a Nationals fan. Now, with the Nats bullpen, I mean, I don't think we need to subject everyone to the uh, appearance-by-appearance breakdown of who did what, but seven Nationals relievers are used. The seven Nats relievers combined to allow six runs in six innings. Here's what I was wondering. So, early on in the relief pitcher portion of this game for the Nationals, you know, you went through that usual dance of, this guy comes in, he doesn't have it. The next guy comes in, he doesn't have it. Then finally things settled down with Sean Nolan. Sean Nolan ultimately, after Mason Thompson, Austin Voth, Andres Machado, and Alberto Baldonado had issues, John Romero as well, Nolan comes in, tosses two scoreless innings. Why do you think David didn't go to Nolan earlier after the rain delay, given that Nolan is like a pseudo starter and in theory could have pitched for multiple innings? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he was looking at what the matchups were. Maybe he you know, sort of wanted to pitch these other guys to get a look at them. But the troubling thing there is they had to use these guys and had to use multiple per inning early in a game where you know you're burning up your bullpen already. I mean, Mason Thompson comes in after the rain delay, starts a a fresh inning, does not retire any of the three batters he faces, and then gets pulled. And so like already, you know now, okay, this is going to be a major uphill battle just to get through this game. And then Austin Voth finishes the inning. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's a multiple inning guy. They could bring him back. But no, he's done after one. 
And it just kind of kept going that way the rest of the game. And Nolan was the only reliever who threw more than one inning. And like you said, it was kind of towards the end when it was sort of already getting out of hand. So I don't know the reason behind that order necessarily. Would it have made a difference to get him in earlier? I don't know. But it does speak to, we talked about this before and I wrote about it earlier in the week, how they don't really have that multi-inning reliever that you can trust. And I mean, this is a weird game, so it's not the perfect example of it, but there've been plenty of games here where the starters knocked out fourth, fifth inning. And ideally you have one guy you can bring in to now bridge the gap to get you to the late innings. And they just have not had that this year. And I know Dave, something Davey wants. He mentioned that it's something that he would like to have next year. But for whatever reason, they just have not been able to identify someone like that, or they haven't been willing to try someone in that role. And they've just been more just throwing guys one inning at a time or even less than an inning at a time. Yeah. I mean, to me, Nolan was that guy for this game. We've seen Nolan be used that way in recent days because he hasn't been a part of the rotation for a few weeks now. And especially when you knew Paolo almost certainly was not coming back into the game because of the rain delay. I was like, okay, this would make sense for Sean Nolan. And instead it was like, no, we got to use Mason Thompson. We got to use Andres Machado. We got to use Alberto Baldonado. It's like, why? I I didn't get that. So one possibility just occurs to me. And we have to remember thinking as this is playing out in real time and not what we know now, maybe Nolan is a guy he was saving for Sunday as a potential starter. And he doesn't know that Paolo is going to come out so quickly and then maybe be available for that game. So maybe in his mind, he's trying to get through this game without going to Nolan because that means he could start on Sunday and it reached a point that he had no choice but to use him. I honestly don't know. We never got around to asking that question. That's the only other explanation I can uh, come up with that might explain uh, a little bit of why they waited to use him in this one. Yeah, I mean, I just would say like once Paolo was out of the game, I mean, once you had the two-hour rain delay, you had two hours to think about your pitching plan. It's kind of like, okay, you didn't map anything out? Like what exactly was going on behind the scenes there? So look, it doesn't really matter. I mean, none of this matters at this point, but uh, I just found that curious that like Davey waited that long to go uh, to Sean Nolan in the game. It was though painful because, you know, you mentioned like with Mason Thompson, two-run Rockies, 30 faces, three batters, gets nobody out. You know, you had something similar with Baldonado when it was ultimately a three-run Rockies fifth, faces three batters, gets just one guy out. You know, we have seen this way too often this year. Like, sometimes guys have it, sometimes they don't. There are degrees, though, of not having it. And there are some spectacular flameouts from these Nats relievers this year where they come in and they can't do anything. They can't get anybody out. They issue, like, four-pitch walks. You know, like, never mind, like, walking the first batter. It's like a four-pitch walk. It's like with an, an exclamation mark. It is told, it is said, it is communicated, I don't have it today. And you saw that with a few guys in this game on Wednesday. You know, we've noted it's got to drive Davey nuts. I'll say it again. It's got to drive Davey nuts because I know it drives all of us nuts watching these games. Not one pitcher they put on the mound in this game through a 1-2-3 inning. (laughs) Not one, okay? I mean, even at Coors Field, you figure someone along the way is going to get three quick outs. Not one of them could do it. The leadoff walks, of course, are awful. Like you said, the four-pitch walks, the hit batters, the interminable time in between pitches, the stepping off the mound, finding no rhythm at all. And that's not good for anybody. I get that as a big reliever, okay, this is a big spot. I'm pitching with guys on base and you know I'm trying to prove myself that I deserve a job next year. Like You want to think through every pitch, but there's an extent to which that's just not helping you or the team. <laughs> It's certainly not helping your defense stay on their toes. I mean, it's a miracle they didn't have more defensive mistakes in this game. They had several, although they had a couple of like spectacular plays as well. It was sort of a strange game defensively. 
But that rhythm, that lack of pace, I feel like that's a big part of what the issues have been. Find me a pitcher who works quickly that generally doesn't pitch well. Like they usually go hand in hand. You work fast, you do well. And I get there's other circumstances that lead to that. But in this case, it's just so striking, some of these guys, how slow and deliberate they are. And it's not helping their cause. No. I mean, Mason Thompson comes into the game, leadoff, five-pitch walk of Charlie Blackman. Two batters later, a hit-by-pitch of C.J. Crone on an 0-2 pitch. And Davey was like, that's it. You're done. And he yanked him from the game. Baldonado comes into the game, leadoff, four-pitch walk of Ryan McMahon. You're like, oh my gosh, here we go once again. It has been an awful year for the Nationals when it comes to pitching. And in this final road game of the season, this was like one more shot, one more snapshot of the Nationals' very bad pitching in 2021. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates, a huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005. Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, He will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers, is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park and make sure you stop by Silver Branch located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now the pitch to C.J. Crone. Swing it's cracked in the air to deep right. Soto back on this one to the track at the wall. Feeling for the wall. He jumps and he makes the catch. Bangs into the fence and comes up a little bit hobbled. What a catch by Soto, but he banged his knee into the wire fencing just below the out-of-town scoreboard. And now there is concern over Soto as he goes down to a knee. Straightens back up to his feet after banging into the fence. And he is waving off the dugout. But he is feeling some discomfort after a terrific catch on the drive off the bat of C.J. Crone. Nationals did hit, although didn't hit like the Rockies hit in this 10-5 loss at Colorado on Wednesday. Uh, Juan Soto, one for four with an RBI infield single and a walk. Soto in that Nats two-run first inning had an RBI infield single on a high chopper to the right side of the infield. You know, it was interesting with the rain delay. We didn't know, was that single going to count or not? And when you're in the midst of a batting race, obviously something like that matters. But obviously the single does end up counting. Batting averages go down, though, with him going one for four. But he does get on base a couple of times in the game. Top of the ninth, he draws a one-out five-pitch walk. And a bit of an injury scare with Soto in this game, although he didn't leave the game and he seems to be fine, correct? Yeah, it seems to be fine. I mean, he slammed into that chain-link fence pretty hard making that catch. It looked like he he caught his foot, his right foot, under the little padding thing, although Davey said that he actually had banged up his right knee, which I think slammed into the chain-link fence. He looked a little, you know, gimpy there in the immediate aftermath, but he stayed in the game. He drew the walk at the plate after that, so I think everything was fine with him. But, I mean, he looks he looks pretty tired, <laughs> let's be honest. And I think physically and mentally, he probably is at this point. They have a day off on Thursday, so that'll help him. And then he's going to come out and, and play all weekend and try to chase down Trey Turner for the batting title. And I think it matters to him. I think he wants to do this. I think he wants to put the pressure on Bryce Harper and Fernando Tatis and try to win the MVP. I don't think he's going to back off at all, but he does look, you know, he's starting to hit balls in the ground again. The swing is just a little bit off. He's just not quite his peak self. Not that you can maintain that forever, but he just looks a little bit off right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of that's physical, just kind of worn down at this point. Yeah. You know, we talked about this in the last installment of the podcast. I was wondering this watching this game, especially after the rain delay, slippery field. You saw some guys slipping. I mean, I don't know why they couldn't have sat Soto the rest of that game. Why, you know, why are you taking a chance like that with a guy? I mean, imagine if he got hurt in that, you know, crashing into the fence scenario. I mean, thank goodness that he didn't. I know you can't manage scared. I know that you can't play scared, but geez, like you can, you know, mitigate risk a little bit. Like did Soto have to go back out there for this game? I mean, I I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like sometimes you got to tell Soto, sit down, okay? Like, it's okay. You don't have to play every inning of every game. This isn't the Ripken Ironman streak here. But anyway, uh, thankfully, he's good to go. Josh Bell, two for four with two singles and a walk 
in the game. Uh, another good game for him. Lane Thomas, another productive game for him. Two for five with a double and a two-run single. Uh, Lane had a big hit in this game. So in the Nats two-run first, he had a leadoff double to left field. Nats three-run third, a two-out, bases loaded, two-run single to left field for a 5-4 Nats lead. There were so many like tie-breaking hits, go-ahead hits in this game. You lose track of like what mattered and you forget like like that Lane Thomas hit by the end of the game felt like it happened six weeks ago when you, like in the moment you're like wow that's a big hit from Lane Thomas and then it just it feels like it became a footnote with everything else that happened as the game went on right and it came after back-to-back strikeouts with the bases loaded by Keyboom and Stevenson and you know you're thinking to yourself oh boy here we go the bases loaded thing is striking again at that point they were 0 for 4 with the bases loaded already in the game in the third inning and then Thomas made it 1 for 5 with that hit They were, in the first three innings alone, they had 12 at-bats with runners in scoring position, 14 plate appearances with runners in scoring position in the first three innings. And then they only had a handful more the rest of the way. You know whose bullpen pitched well? The Rockies. They didn't give up a run in six innings of relief. Somehow they managed to get through all that with no problems. Just a long, strange game with some twists and turns early. And I thought this was going to be one of those back and forth all game and it was going to be, you know, 10 to 9 the final. And instead, the Nats just kind of shut it down after the rain delay. And, you know, maybe they at that point, after sitting through the rain delay, I wouldn't have been surprised if deep down inside their clubhouse, they were like, let's get out of here. We have a long flight home. Like, do we really want to come back and finish this game? And then they found out, no, actually, we do have to finish the game. I could see how they might have been, you know, lost their edge a little bit the rest of the way. Let me also point out, because you mentioned it, and I I know for some fans, it's a little confusing. Had that game not resumed, okay, it's only in the third inning, it's not an official game, they would, in theory, suspend it to be completed at a later date. That's how it would normally work. But because it was so late in the year, because it doesn't matter for either team in terms of standings or anything like that, they probably would have just called it off. And that meant that the Nats and the Rockies would have finished with 161 games this year instead of 162. And what that also means is that anything that happened in those first two innings officially would not have happened. So all the stats would have been wiped out. Paolo wouldn't have given up the four runs. Soto wouldn't have gotten the hit, the RBI. Thomas wouldn't have had the double. So it's a strange thing, but officially that's the rule. The game has to be official, meaning five innings, in order for the stats to count. If it's less than that and they never complete the game on a later date, None of it counts. None of it happens. So that was potentially like going to set up a weird scenario. It's not that hard to think of like an issue where like Soto finishes one point ahead or one point behind of Trey Turner for the batting title and his one for two didn't count. So thank, I mean, you know, saving grace, it counted everything from this game, you know, actually will show up. But that's one of those weird quirks that had the game not resumed, nothing that we saw would have actually happened in terms of in Major League Baseball's eyes. Yeah. So unlikely they would have played on Thursday. You think that it would have just been shut down? I think so. I mean, again, if the game meant anything, of course they would do that. Are they in the last week of the season going to make the Nats stay another night at the end of a 10-game road trip uh, flying all the way back east? I think the Nats would have had pretty big opposition to that (laughs) if it came to it. So, you know, I get it. They care about the sanctity of the 162-game season and ticket holders and all that. But under these circumstances, my guess is they would not have wanted to complete it. And it's happened twice in Nats history, 2008, 2011, where they only played 162 games. It usually requires a rainout late in the season between teams that aren't playing for anything anymore. And they say, we're not going to reschedule it. Sometimes they'll reschedule a game for the Monday after the season ends. And then sometimes they'll actually call that off 
if it doesn't matter in the end. So we came close, but it did not happen this way. The, barring any rain this weekend, they will play 162. Uh, a few other items from this game. Luis Garcia had another double. Mr. Doubles, uh, Tony Two Bags, part two here. Luis Garcia and the Nats through run third in an RBI double to right field to cut the Nats deficit uh, to 4-3. Luis also with a walk in the game. So for Garcia now, that's 18 doubles on the season. Two fewer than Juan Soto, one more than Trey Turner had during his time with the Nats this year. And Alcides Escobar, one for four, had an infield single and a walk. The infield single, your typical all CDs hit in that Nats two run first and infield single on a slow roller to the left side of the infield. But how about the defensive bottom of the fourth inning for all CDs Escobar? A really bad moment and then just an outstanding moment. So Alcides committed a throwing error on a one out grounder off the bat of Trevor Story. It was not a good throw, obviously, it was an error. But Alcides then made a spectacular throw on a CJ Crone ground out for the third out. 3 1 pitch. Swing a chopper left side. It's fielded on the outfield grass by Escobar the jump throw to first the stretch by Bell what a play he's out that seemed like no chance Escobar from shallow left field the jump throw right on target to nail the runner at first Escobar getting high fives on his way back to and into the dugout a spectacular play colossal jump throw across his body like he put everything he had into this jump throw makes a great throw like no hop or anything like that to Josh Bell at first base. I mean, legitimately one of the more impressive defensive plays by a national this season. Yeah, that was a Derek Jeter style play. <laughs> you know, it really was. The remarkable thing to me was, so he's falling backwards. He jumps. He shouldn't be able to put anything on that throw. And he got it there, not just on the fly, but like with juice on it. That was a really, really impressive throw. One of the best maybe we've ever seen from anyone on this team. And it kind of caught you by surprise because it came moments after that really ugly air. So like I said, this game had the combination of some great defensive plays and some really ugly defensive plays. It was just a strange one all around. But a guy who I think we all agree like has done a nice job at shortstop. I don't think we're anybody saying like, oh, he's been fantastic there, but he's done a nice job. That was by far his most impressive play of the season there. Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Shovers here, producer of this podcast. Want to thank everyone this week. Uh, an overwhelming response to uh, what we discussed on the show on Monday morning about helping out with some end-of-season production costs as uh, they play 162 games here in Major League Baseball, as Mark and I have talked about in this episode. If you are interested, feel free to visit natschatpodcast.square.site. There we have our t-shirts, and you also can see something for an end of season as we work towards our periodic off-season programming and getting ready for opening day of 2022. Again, the website, natschatpodcast.square.site. Now back to the show. You can always email the natschatpodcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Interesting question put forth by Sammy Rabinowitz, and it's more like a topic. I don't know if there's a specific question here, but right, Sammy says, there seems to be this loose plan in place that's supposed to take us out of the retool. Healthy Strasburg, reinvigorated Corbin, rising stars Gray and Cavalli, and a nice fifth option, healthy Ross, Eric Fetty, or Mr. Secret Weapon. So why is there a widespread feeling among fans that this isn't going to work? Well, that's a pretty easy question to answer if you think about our team's history. But how is the team supposed to fix something that they already seem to think they have fixed. We're not going to sign someone if money is already with Strauss and Corbin. We're not trading for a young star if Gray and Cavalli are in the wings and Rutledge is behind them. 
not to mention the lack of trade pieces. So how are the Nats supposed to bolster a problem that they've supposedly bolstered? And aren't the Nats aware that this pitching plan of theirs completely lacks the confidence of their fan base? So, I mean, there's a lot there with what he asks. I think, though, it kind of gets to this thing of if the Nats are trying to be good again sooner rather than later, and a big part of the pitching plan for next season is healthy Strasburg, you know, fixed Corbin. I mean, to me, that's delusional. To me, that is overly optimistic. You better have a really good plan B behind that plan A. Now, if the Nats are content with rebuilding for a year or two, then I think that's different. But yeah, I mean, this goes to behind the scenes. What are these conversations like right now with Mike Rizzo and his staff and Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez of how are the Nats going to try to fix what is obviously the biggest problem, which is the pitching? What do you think internally they're thinking in terms of a starting pitching plan for next year? Well, you know, so here's the thing. I don't disagree with any of that, what you said or what he wrote. But if you are the Nationals, deep down, honestly, what's the alternative or what would say realistic alternative to that. They're not going to spend big money on a starter. You can't do that with the Strasburg and Corbin contracts, not unless you know you're going into next year and you believe that you're ready to win big. And I don't think internally that they are viewing 2022 that way. I think they're looking at this and saying, you know, we think we can take a step forward. We're not trying to tank. We're not trying to lose 100 games. But I think deep down, they know that 2023 is probably the year where they might have a better chance of really going for it. And they will base that off of what they see they have in 2022. But you have Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin under contract. What are you going to do? Not pitch them? You know, now it may blow up in their faces. Strasburg may not get out of spring training and Corbin may be the same old version of himself. But what's the alternative there? So I get why they would do this. I think I could see them signing one modestly priced free agent starter this winter to help fill the gap there. But I don't see it being anybody that big. And as we know, you know, their future hopes are very much tied to Gray and Cavalli. And Cavalli did not have a real good start in his final AAA start, by the way. Gray's been good and bad, but more so good than bad. I just, I don't see how they go into next year and not just find out what they have from Strasburg and Corbin, you know? Even if it derails their season, I don't know that there was a, a real viable alternative to that anyways, because I don't think they're going into this winter saying, hey, we're going to win big in 2022. Yeah. I mean, in theory, they could sign a bunch of free agent pitchers, right? Like if they really wanted to, they could. The learners are the richest ownership group in the sport. That doesn't mean that they should do that. I wouldn't advocate for doing that. I think the Nats need to be done with giving out these mega money contracts to pitchers. But like this offseason, Kevin Gaussman, Robbie Ray, Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, like there are a lot of free agent pitchers out there. In theory, you could go nuts, sign multiple guys and say, you know, we're back at it in 2022. I don't think that's the way to go, but you could do that. Uh, To your point, yeah, I mean, you of course have to see what you have, especially in Strasbourg. I just don't know how you can have any faith that he's going to A, be good to go for the start of the season and B, going to be really good again. Like, hopefully he is. You try like heck for him to be that. You support him like crazy. But if you're being realistic, I just don't know how you can count on that. So, you know, at some point with the Strasbourg contract, I mean, you have five years left on that extension. So they're going to have to come to terms with this of, are we just going to, for the next five years, say we can't spend any money on anything because of the Strasbourg deal? Or do you just swallow that and say, well, this is the cost of doing business and we got to figure something else out? Like it's a sunk cost. That money, 
they got to deal with that now. That you know, that is a big matzo ball that they got to swallow for the next five years. What we still don't know is the insurance thing on that, and I, and I guess there's no insight on that. Is there whether any of that contract is covered by insurance? No, I haven't been able to get that confirmed by anyone. It, it's something they you know don't necessarily want to have out there because it could reveal their intentions or you know paint them in a bad light in some way. But so here's what I'd say: I think you give it one more year with with both guys, with Strasburg and Corbin. I think it's perfectly valid to say we're going to see what we have from them in 2022. And if Strasburg is healthy and looks like he can be something resembling his previous self, then that's great. And that's sets him up for the rest of the contract. If Corbin can pitch like we saw for, for the last five starts, then he's a, a viable part of this. If, however, Strasburg, you know, makes two starts again next year, or if uh, Corbin has a 550 or 6 ERA again, then I think now it's time to decide, okay, we need to move on from this. And I don't know what that looks like. But, you know, you're certainly not counting on either one of them beyond that. I'm okay with them going into next year, hoping those two are healthy and productive. Doesn't mean you count on it. And you do need to have some fallback options more so in the, you know, sixth, seventh starter kind of range. We're not talking about number two or three starters. You just need, you know, to make sure you have some, a couple other big league pitchers that can fill out a rotation for you if those guys are not part of it. But I think given the situation they're in and what the contract statuses are, you put them out there in spring training and you hope for the best and understand it may not work out, but you give them each one more shot, I would say. With Cade Cavalli, so this was a 10-6 Rochester loss to Scranton Wilkesbury on Wednesday. Cavalli got shellacked four runs in two-thirds of an inning. Things did not go well for Cade Cavalli at the AAA level here. Cade Cavalli in his time with Rochester, and it was a great year in terms of what he did at high A, in terms of what he did at double A, but for Cavalli at the triple A level, six starts, 24 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 730, a whip of 186. Um, You have your built-in excuse next spring training to not begin the major league regular season with Cade Cavalli uh, at the major league level. And you can start that service time clock whenever you want to, because, man, this was kind of like a screeching halt to an otherwise very encouraging season for Cade Cavalli. And, you know, I don't think this undoes the excitement that we all have for him, but there was certainly a humbling that went on for him over these six starts at AAA. Like he was dominant at High A Wilmington, dominant for AA Harrisburg. A very different story has been told for Cade Cavalli uh, with AAA Rochester here. And I think it's a reminder to everyone that these guys do take some time, (laughs) that it's really hard to burst through a farm system that quickly of what he was doing the way that a Steven Strasburg did and a handful of others have done. But for the most part, you don't see that happen. Basically, his first professional season, at least competitive professional season pitching against opposition, you start at single A, you finish at triple A. That doesn't happen. Two leaps like that is not normal. And it's not just about the stuff. It's about learning how to pitch as a professional. There are a lot of little things you just learn along the way that honestly, we don't really ever see because they're spending two, three years in the minor leagues and we're not scrutinizing every single one of their starts to this extent. But because of the situation the team is in, because he was promoted so quickly because he was so good, so dominant at single A and double A, we were instantly going to be watching him at triple A and saying, well, maybe there's a chance he's going to be in the big leagues this year. It takes time. You learn these things over time. And so I don't personally think that this makes the view of him any different as far as what he can be. 
I think it just slows down the timeline a little bit, which would be a more normal timeline. And if it means he starts next year at AAA and gets some more work in, that's fine. It's also another reason why I've been saying all along that, yeah, they may in their heads have this grand idea of if everything comes together, they could surprisingly be a better team, a winning team in 2022. But deep down, they know that's probably not going to happen. There are too many things that would need to have happen, and there are still too many young guys who need time to develop, I think, for them to seriously approach 2022 as a winning year. Yeah, and their number one priority is to fix player development and get this farm system back to being in a good place. And I also think, too, working with all of this is, hey, we won the World Series in 2019, so there's not this urgency, there's not this desperation that there was for years of, we got to win a championship. We got to win a champ. You know, it's like, hey, we did it in 2019. And so there is almost like a luxury now of, and whether there should be or not is, you know, a matter of opinion. But I could certainly see internally the philosophy being, hey, we can take a step back for a year or two here because we just won a championship, you know? So I think that may be in play here uh, as well. So I think the key mindset, and it, look, there's a long way to go. We still don't know how this is all going to play out, and we have plenty of time to talk about it before next spring. But I think the mindset as far as how to think of 2022 should be this. You should want these last two months of 2021 to be the low point. You don't want to sink lower than that. You do not want next year to be worse than what we've seen over these two months. But you don't necessarily need 2022 to be such an improvement that you are all of a sudden have a winning record or that you're contending again. To me, next year is the improvement year. That's the year you get to the end of 2022. You want to be able to say, okay, we're on the right track here. We've identified who the pieces are for the future. We're now ready to go spend some money and fortify that with some veterans that this franchise is in a much better place at the end of 2022 than they were at the beginning of 2022. And oh yeah, remember how awful August, September of 21 was? Yeah, we don't ever want to go through that again. So this isn't a, they're going to go into the winter, strip it down, and next year is the 100-loss season. That's not what they want. But if next year is a 90-loss season or 87-loss season, whatever that might be, and you've identified pieces and you can get to the end and say, okay, I think we're on the right track here, that to me is what the motivation, the goal should be in 2022. Yeah, I think what's tricky is that the pieces are probably already on the team. And so you just need these pieces to pan out. Like, I don't know how this offseason they would acquire another highly touted pitching prospect like a Josiah Gray. Like, if they're going to get good again sooner rather than later, it's going to be because Josiah Gray works out and Cade Cavalli works out and Cade Ruiz works out and Lane Thomas is legitimate. And if those guys end up not being the pieces we hope that they are, then I think you could be in for multiple bad years here. Like, I don't know what you can do this offseason to bring in more high-level prospects. Like, who is left to trade? Unless you're going to trade away Soto, which they're not going to do, this is kind of what you have in terms of your prospects. You know, maybe you make a few marginal moves this offseason, but it's on the guys they got in that late July sell-off to pan out. It's on a guy like Cavalli to pan out for this thing to turn around quickly. And we'll see if it happens, you know, but we're not going to know for at least a little while here. So we shall see. Yeah. The only other thing I'd say there is that, and we won't know the answer to this for a while, you're not going to go acquire other big prospects this winter, no. But let's see how this year's draft picks develop in the next year. Let's see any international players who start to come up in the pipeline. And let's look at next summer's draft. They're going to have you know, potentially the fifth pick, maybe sixth pick in next year's draft. That could be a fast track 
college player who's ready to burst on the scene within a year. That could happen. So that would probably be the path that they could have some infusion of young talent that could help you out quickly. But no, you're right. They're not going to get it in trades. That's not going to happen this winter. So that would be one avenue to try to bolster what you have in the next 12 months. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the podcast to natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You get yourself a Natschat podcast t-shirt. Get yourself a secret weapon t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.com. Dot square dot site. All Nashville's radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. We're going to leave you with a piece of audio here that's really special, very unique. Uh, it's one of the most significant moments in not just Washington, D.C. baseball history, but Washington, D.C. history, period, like sports, non-sports, whatever. The 50th anniversary of fans storming the field in 1971, the final Senators game, is on this day that you're listening to the podcast. And so we're going to play for you right now the call of this happening. This is Ron Mancini from WWDC 50 years ago today. So September 30th, 1971. We know it is a very unique history for baseball in Washington, D.C. with the Senators twice leaving the area. There are a lot of reasons for that. Bad ownership is a big time one. A lot of bad teams. Another one you know, Washington, D.C., the area, the demographics here are very different as compared to what they were back in the day with those teams. Many more people now, much more diverse area, much more affluent area, you know. So baseball 100% should be here now, top 10 television market, etc. But, you know, there is a stain of twice having lost a major league team. Again, a lot of that had to do with factors outside of the area's control. Again, bad ownership. But this was some scene 50 years ago today, and we bring you the radio call right now. And for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. The Yankees have two outs. Pandemonium has broken loose. And some youngsters are coming out on the field. This will not be a complete game unless they get back. This will not be a complete game unless they get back. So we certainly hope that this ball game can be concluded. Players now are clearing the field. As pandemonium has broken loose, and the field is filled with many souvenir hunters. The Senators lead seven to five with two outs. Police are trying to restore order, but the crowd continues to mill all around the field. Some fans are scooping up dirt. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. 
Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.